Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati, Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. I am super, super excited about my guest today. Have you heard of Diving with a Purpose? Well, if you haven't, you must look it up. They are a team of black divers who have come together to add education, history, and legacy to diving. I'm honored to have one of the team members on to chat with me today. You'll hear about sunken slave ships, how they're helping the youth and the state of coral and marine life, and a whole lot more. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. United Airlines CEO said that the airline is offering credit or refunds to passengers who don't want to fly without a mask. Yes, we remember the mask mandate that was lifted or challenged by a judge last week. Travelers who are uneasy about flying without mask requirements may be able to get their money back if they opt to cancel a trip with United. United CEO Scott Kirby told USA Today Day on Thursday that the airline is prepared to give refunds or flight credits to customers who no longer want to fly after a federal judge struck down the mask mandate for airplanes and public transit a couple of weeks ago. United is one of several airlines that have since opted to make masks optional for flyers since the ruling stating all of our customers should feel free to wear a mask and many of them are. Kirby said that for customers like that that are immune compromised or that have other concerns or issues, we're working with those customers if they really don't want to fly. United spokesperson Josh Freed told Insider that travelers seeking a credit or refund do not need a reason to make a change or cancel the flight such as being immune compromised or having a child under five. These customers should call customer service to find a good answer to their situation. Free did not specifically confirm a refund will be an option in all cases, but emphasized United's flexible change policy, adding most tickets allow customers to apply their fare to travel through the end of 2023. The ones that are most challenging are basic economy tickets. They do not allow changes. They can, however, be canceled for a fee with the remaining balance kept as a flight credit or the ticket can be upgraded to standard economy for a fee and then it can be changed. This is according to the points guy. United's decision comes as many travelers voice concern over the safety of maskless flights. And Kirby also says that he doubts the mandate will return anytime in the foreseeable future. We have to remember that while it is being challenged, it is not 100% a done deal. So there's a possibility, but the airlines and the travel industry are certainly thinking that they don't expect it to return as that's going to be a hard pill to swallow for most, especially those who do not want to wear a mask. So mask mandates, yeah, for planes and public transportation have been struck down by the judge and challenged, but it's still up for review. And the CDC still highly recommends and are still pushing for a mask mandate for public transportation. So yeah, we have a lot to see there. And in the midst of it, there were canceled flights, understaffed airports. And then of course, we still have the soaring car rental costs, despite restrictions that are easing across the nation and COVID rates settling. It's said to be a challenging summer of travel as we reported last week. We said it's being called the summer of chaos. So be prepared, be patient, and be flexible. Those are going to be the main things. Now, also with the mask mandates being lifted or at this point being removed for the time being, there are still some airlines and some airports 
who remain with a mask mandate. So you have to check before you head to the airport and you have to check before you board the flight. So we have many airlines, U.S. carriers, international airlines that depart from the United States. For example, Los Angeles Airport, LAX, still requires you to wear a mask. And Fiji Airways, for example, the airline that we're flying to Fiji, requires that a mask be worn on board. So it is not, as I said, 100% across the board. You must check and see. And whether you're going to Europe, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how some airlines are eliminating the mask mandate, but it is based on arrival or origin destination rules. So you really do have to check. And I would certainly recommend that you carry masks with you just so that you're prepared at all times. Now, did you see the video that has emerged to show the former heavyweight boxing champ, Mike Tyson, hitting a fellow airline passenger? Let me know what side you're on. I'm team Mike on this one, to be honest with you. Yes, I'm giving my opinion here because I looked at the video footage and I read a few reports. And what's happening is that the fellow traveler approached Tyson. Tyson even posed for a photo with him. But the traveler just would not leave him alone. And it was very apparent through the video that he had been drinking. He just would not leave Mike alone. He kept, in my opinion, harassing him and just sitting behind him and having a friend of his film him. And Mike reportedly asked numerous times, can you please just leave me alone? But then the fellow traveler threw water on Mike and that's when Mike lost it. I certainly don't condone violence in any way, but when you feel like your personal space is being attacked. So let me know, what side are you on? How do you feel about the situation? And what do you think the airline would have, could have, or should have done in the situation? Could they have intervened? Well, let me know. Chicago O'Hare is getting a major makeover. Yes, the busy Midwestern hub of Chicago O'Hare International is set to undergo an $8.5 billion revamp. This is rendering of the new global terminal. Chicago O'Hare International Airport was for decades the world's busiest airport, but became notorious for congestion and poor customer satisfaction. So a new $8.5 billion makeover is set to transform the huge Midwestern hub. The current holder of the world's busiest airport by passenger traffic title is Hartsville-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Tourism is certainly on the rebound. Global travel and tourism GDP could be back to 2019 levels by next year. This is according to a hopeful new forecast by the World Travel and Tourism Council. It also reckons tourism will be a driving force for the global economic recovery, creating one in three of all jobs. Some U.S. airlines are also expecting record revenue. I think we realized with the pandemic how much tourism impacts the economy and how many people are employed in hospitality and how many people were affected. So yes, it will certainly be a driving force in the economic recovery as it had been back in 2008 through 2012. But tourists can maybe expect to pay what is called a tourism tax. Venice, for example, Venice, Italy, has come up with a new 10 euro entry fee. So we're talking about 11 to $12, depending on the rate of exchange. That will be introduced next year. It will be the first city in the world to introduce an entry fee. However, there are some others that are kind of watching and seeing what's happening and considering doing the same, like Wales and Edinburgh are some of the other European destinations that are considering a tax on tourism or a tax for tourists. So yeah, be prepared for that. Earth Day was April 22nd as more than a billion people prepared to observe Earth Day. They participated in activities to protect the planet. AAA, the Auto Club Group, is sharing ways Americans can do their part. 
And this goes well beyond Earth Day. You can reduce your carbon footprint by bringing reusable water and toiletry bottles and having travel documents sent electronically instead of printed. And you want to be mindful of energy and water usage by taking shorter showers, reusing bath towels, and keeping heat and air conditioning at moderate temperatures. You know, those bath towels that you want to have laundered every day. You know, at home, you may use it for a few days in a row. So you can hang up your towel typically. And that indicates to the hotel cleaning crew or hotel housekeeping that you will reuse your towel. If you put it on the floor, then they'll wash it. And just consider the amount of not only water, but detergents that are used in this process. You can travel during the off season or to less popular areas to limit infrastructure challenges that are created by over-tourism. And a lot of cities are really looking at over-tourism. Shop and eat locally to support the community. That's very important. I know there are big chains all over but these small businesses are the ones that really keep the communities alive. Purchase locally made souvenirs, preferably handmade, and pay a fair price. I know we get into this mode of bargaining and we feel like we're being overcharged, but consider the labor, especially those artisans that are working hard and may only make one sale a day. So consider their labor and their work and their efforts. You want to honor local customs and immerse yourself in the local culture. You know that's something Traveling Culturati always encourages you to do. AAA, the Auto Club Group, announced an expanded partnership with Tourism Cares, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that uses the travel industry to create a positive impact for the people and places that are impacted by travel. Believe it or not, Memorial Day is coming up. Yes, it's just a month away. So we have some tips for you on the best and worst times to book. You want to consider that now. Yes, because summer travel, and that's kind of the beginning of summer travel, is already showing high volume and prices have already gone up. I was pricing a ticket for someone two weeks ago that priced at, let's say, $1,300. And then last week, it went up that same ticket to $2,200. So definitely start looking at your summer travel now, starting with Memorial Day. But flights during Memorial Day weekend will cost on average $160 more per day compared to 2021. This summer will beat pre-pandemic travel numbers, according to travel experts. From flights and car rentals to cruises and hotels, they've surged over 122 percent over 2021. Even with flight inflation rising, it's the fastest pace in more than 40 years, according to AAA. Certainly, this means that we're all ready to travel. We all have this pent-up desire to travel. To help travelers, AAA broke down the best and worst times to purchase airline tickets ahead of the holiday weekend. So according to AAA booking data, the best time to get an airline seat is roughly two weeks out from the holiday weekend. During that time, travelers will spend on average of $445 per ticket. Comparatively, Seats booked between 28 and 60 days will have an average cost of $470. Now, the best time to book is either on a Sunday or Friday when the average price of airfare will be between $543 and $596 per ticket, respectively. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, I'll have Javon's Travel Minute and diving with a Purpose team member, Al Dobbins. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Visit the website, travelingculturati.com, connect with me on social media, and join the travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Hotels are a great source of information, even if you're not staying there. But especially if you are, check in with the concierge, the front desk, the bellman, Hotel staff are locals and they receive information on local tourism and attractions. Often they'll receive discount coupons and vouchers for guests and they know where and when to find discounts and specials. 
They can also tell you the best and worst times to visit a place. Today, hotels and resorts offer a wide range of services and amenities and can be a wealth of information and resources. They're also a good go-to for the toilet. Yes, when you're out in public and public facilities cannot be found, just walk in like you belong and head toward the meeting rooms. If asked, say you're attending a meeting or conference. They're typically listed on the marquee. So again, just walk straight ahead. And if asked, can I help you? Uh, Yes, I'm attending a conference. This is Javon and that was your Travel Minute. I am so excited today because I'm chatting with a member of Diving with a Purpose. Al Dobbins is an archaeology advocate instructor with Diving with a Purpose. And again, I am just so elated to be speaking with a member of the team because I've been following them for quite some time. Hello, Al, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. I'm glad to be here. For those who may not know, what is Diving with a Purpose? Well, Diving with a Purpose was created maybe 16, 17 years ago. We started out working with the National Park Service in the Biscayne National Park. The whole Diving with a Purpose archaeology program was introduced to us by one of the park rangers, Brenda Lassendorf, who has since passed. But she taught us the basics on how to do underwater archaeology survey work. And we started out with a group of about four divers from National Association of Black Divers. That group was headed by Ken Stewart, who continues to head Diving with a Purpose. And we started out surveying wrecks in the National Biscayne Park that Brenda Lazendorf knew were there, but didn't have the resources in order to actually survey. So we started off with that project. And of course, it's mushroomed now into something much bigger. We are also in the Key Biscayne National Park. We've been all over the world. We've been to Africa. We've been to the Virgin Islands. And we have several projects going on now that we call missions. But every year during June, we conduct a training session. So we're really dedicated to the conservation and protection of submerged heritage resources. That's our primary purpose. That's our primary focus. I see, because Uh, I know that you're a 501c3 charitable organization. So is all of that part of the conservation? Yes, it is. Actually, both the archaeology program and the coral conservation program are both related to our 501c3 status. We are a nonprofit, as you have indicated. We work primarily off of donations, grants, and volunteerism. And of course, we believe our work is of value to the greater community. So if you want to know more about this, you can go to divingwiththepurpose.org and click the donate button. Absolutely. Always do that. Support an effort and a cause, especially something that is really helping expand exposure, knowledge, and education to the Black community as well. And that's one of the things that you're doing. And I want to talk more about how you got connected with the National Association of Black Scuba Divers. Well, I'm a lifetime member with the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, but I started out with the Underwater Adventure Seekers in Washington, D.C., which may be the oldest dive club probably in the world. We're in our 64th year. We were created by uh, Dr. Jose Jones, who is a PhD in marine biology. And I got started with Underwater Adventure Seekers when I moved to Washington, D.C., and since branched off into diving with a purpose and with NABS. So I've been involved for over 20 years with both UAS and with Diving with a Purpose. So what sparked your interest in diving? Well, I'll have to tell my age. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I just say that you're just that much more seasoned, I guess. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I am seasoned. You're exactly right. Anyway, I started out sitting in front of my black and white TV watching Lloyd Bridges do his underwater show and then went on to watch the show of Jacques Cousteau's television series and got really interested in the underwater world. I was a Boy Scout from a very, very early age, went on to learn how to swim, did some lifeguarding for the Scouts. So I had a strong appreciation for the natural environment above the water, but this gave me an opportunity to understand a little bit about what the natural environment was under the water. So my interest grew as I got older And, oh, maybe 22 years ago or so, I took my daughter to the Bahamas and we went snorkeling. 
And as we snorkeled on the surface, I looked down and there was these divers and they were just going by, diving by me underwater. And I said, gee, I want to be down there with them. So I came back and I went to a class and, and got certified. So I got involved because of my longstanding interest in the marine life and the marine world, but also because of my desire for the adventure of scuba diving. There was a very interesting phone call that kind of sparked a direction that Diving with a Purpose went into from Karuna Eberl. So I want to talk about that because that began kind of my discovery of Diving with a Purpose and some of the docuseries that have been born out of this. So tell us a little bit about that phone call and the direction of Diving with a Purpose and the transatlantic slave trade. Well, that phone call took place with Ken Stewart, our founder. So I'm not exactly privileged to what went on in in that phone call, but I do know the phone call was related to a sunken slave ship off the coast of Florida called the Guerrero. And it was hoped that as we trained more and more divers in maritime archaeology, that we would have an opportunity to explore the Florida coast and hopefully discover or rediscover the Guerrero, which everyone knows to be a slave ship that went down off the coast. So that was one of the main reasons why I got involved, because I thought it would be really exciting and very educational and informative to be a part of the group that discovered a slave ship off the coast of Florida. Well, at this point in time, we've had several missions looking for the Guerrero, We know it's there. There's plenty of documentation that it went down off the coast, but we haven't been able to find it yet, but we're still looking. And that got us started on the whole idea of looking for slavery-related shipwrecks, not only off the coast of Florida, but all over the world. That is just so amazing because I did see the docuseries. I believe it was six episodes and it was narrated and also Samuel L. Jackson was part of it. And so was diving with a purpose to locate six slave ships that went down with their human cargo during the transatlantic slave trade. And it was just amazing. I know that there were other documentaries that were done as well, but were you privy to be on any of the projects, diving specifically, looking for slave ships? Well, off the coast of Florida, I was on a couple of missions that looked for the Guerrero in the Virgin Islands. I did some diving off of St. John's, looking for what we thought would be a sunken slave ship. We were not able to find one and identify one specifically, but that's a part of what we do with maritime archaeology. Oftentimes, it takes many, many dives and many, many investigations before we actually find what we're looking for. The fact is that Diving with a Purpose cannot claim to have found any dive ships, any sunken ships now that were related to the late slave trade, but we have supported a variety of efforts that have produced results, efforts by the National Park Service, by NOAA, and by National Geographic. As you've indicated, one of our team members, Kramer Kimberly, was figured prominently in the series with Samuel Jackson. We know the Clotilda being one that was sunken, but in some of the explorations and searches that I saw on the docu-series, I can just only imagine how amazing that is because we know that there was the transatlantic slave trade and we know the transport. And in some cases, these ships were sunk on purpose. And then sometimes it was just rough waters and these things happened. So It's a whole new exploration. I think it gave us a completely different lens into the transatlantic slave trade. But I also know that Diving with a Purpose is so much more, as you've already indicated, with the Biscayne Park. And I understand that you're also very versed with the Coral Project and Program. What is the work that Diving with a Purpose is doing with the Coral Project? Well, we started out working with the Coral Restoration Foundation, also in Florida, where we learned the basics on how to grow coral underwater, how to maintain the coral gardens that the Coral Restoration Foundation had established in various locations, not only off the coast of Florida, but also around the world. So we started out helping to grow submerged coral trees off the coast of Florida, but that has really ballooned and gotten much bigger than that. Now our coral restoration program has become more of a ocean conservation program where we are documenting the lack of the prevalence or lack of marine life 
scientifically, and in addition to uh, trying to grow and replant coral in areas where coral had been damaged or otherwise discolored by climate issues. So we have what we call now the CARES program that focuses on not only coral restoration, but also learning about the ocean and learning about how particular climate change and fiscal damage has damaged the ocean over time. Now, with the Coral Project and with the overall goal of diving with a purpose, what efforts are there for education to young African-Americans to get their interest into diving and marine life? Well, we have another program called Youth Diving with a Purpose, and that's been around for probably around 10 years. The Youth Diving with a Purpose program does exactly what the adult diving with the program does. They do marine archaeology. They work on our CARES program, but they do it as a group of youth from various parts, actually, of the world who come together every June to learn how to do Diving with the Purpose programs, both maritime archaeology and CARES. We've been very successful in working with youth. As you may have seen, we work with youth divers between the ages of 16 and 23. They have a diverse background and they're taught basic mapping skills and they work to help document some of the shipwrecks that we have found off the coast of Florida. And they work in our CARES program as well to learn more about marine ecology. That is so awesome. Now, what does it take for someone who wants to become a scuba diver? Well, they have to get certified. And there are probably three or four different organizations around the world that do diving certifications. Most of us are certified by an organization called PADI, P-A-D-I, and don't ask me to tell you what the acronym means because I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But we get certified as basic divers, and then we advance through a series of exercises that take us into the advanced diver range and into the dive master range. And I'm a dive master. I'm considered a pro. I work with instructors. I assist instructors in teaching people how to dive. So that's one of the higher levels of PADI certification program. But to be a part of DWP and to participate in the Maritime Archaeology Program or the CARES Program or the Youth Diving with a Purpose Program, we ask that all the participants be certified divers and have at least 30 dives. And that gives us some indication of their ability to dive and most importantly, their ability to maintain neutral buoyancy, which is critical to doing the work that we do. And so when you say neutral buoyancy, what do you mean? Well, in maritime archaeology, we have to be able to hover motionless over the objects that we're attempting to document, both by hand drawing and by photography, so that we get an accurate representation of what we're trying to document underwater. So we have to be able to maintain neutral buoyancy, maintain a certain level above the object that we're investigating, and then be able to draw in situ what we're looking at and then translate that to a map when we come back to get together as a group. Same thing applies for the diving with Purpose Cares program. It's essential that you be able to maintain neutral buoyancy in the water column. And so it's important that we ask people to come to the program with some level of diving proficiency. So now I know that when I travel, for example, the resorts that you go to sometimes do quick certifications so that you can scuba dive for beginners. And oh, and I looked it up. It's the Professional Association of Diving Instructors is Patty. (laughs) It's Patty. I know sometimes even in my own industry, we see acronyms so many times and we just know what they are, but we forget what what they were from the beginning. (laughs) We know Patty has put another dollar in. (laughs) (laughs) because all the certifications require financial commitment as well. I understand. So what I was saying is at the resorts, you always see them doing these quick lessons in the pool. And then you get to go out to do an actual dive. But I'm sure that's a big difference between that very quick beginner, quick certification, and certainly the level that you're doing. But there's a lot in between that as well, if you can kind of explain that to us a little bit. 
Yeah, that's a resort certification. And if you go through a resort certification, PADI in particular requires that if that individual goes into open water, that they be almost permanently attached to an instructor so that they don't get themselves into a situation where they have endangered themselves. But to be a certified diver, you have to go through a pretty extensive course that teaches the basics of scuba diving, both in the classroom and in the pool. And you have to be able to go out into open water and dive with an instructor and demonstrate to an instructor that you have learned the basics of scuba diving. Scuba diving is an exciting and interesting and rewarding sport, but there is also a certain level of danger associated with it. So dive safety is critical. And if you want to get certified, you not only have to know about the physics of diving and the individual proficiencies that have to be developed, but you also have to understand what the safety issues are and how to deal with them. Absolutely. Safety first in all situations. And I'm not a diver and I haven't even been resort (laughs) certified. Uh, I can get you certified. Yeah. (laughs) My husband has tried for many years and I always go out and do the snorkeling part, but, (laughs) but I love that too. And certainly that's where your interests sparked in addition to Jacques Cousteau as a young person. And you talked about your daughter too. Did she decide to dive? You said that there was that experience that you had in the Bahamas with your daughter and you were snorkeling. Well, I convinced her to do a resort certification (laughs) and she enjoyed it and it was fun for her, but my daughter is a creative. And so she's more interested in her singing career and in music than she is in the underwater world. But it was my opportunity to at least introduce her to it. And you show your children what the possibilities are, then you let them make their choices. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of these fantastic places where you have been able to dive. What are some of your favorites? Well, every diver that I know is asked, what is your favorite dive site? Well, that's a very difficult question, obviously, for us. I mean, I've got over 800 dives and all over the world. And every dive is different. And some dives are different for different reasons. If you want to look at a dive purely from a coral perspective, there is an island called Wakatobi in Indonesia that has the most beautiful coral I've ever seen. If you want to look at it from a big animal point of view, I've been diving in Galapagos, and I have dived with whale sharks and schooling hammerhead sharks. If you want to also look at it from a big animal point of view, I just got back from the Maldives where we were diving with giant manta rays. So it's different everywhere. I also just got back from Cozumel. Cozumel is known for drift diving, where you find yourself in a current and you just drift along with the current. And that's a unique situation. So every dive is different for different reasons. And basically, I love them all. I will tell you, though, after diving for over 20 years and oftentimes going back to the same dive site, there has been a significant decline in marine life pretty much all over the world. If you really want to do some serious diving these days, you have to go into the Indo-Pacific in Indonesia, Micronesia, the Philippines, which I've been to to really see more of the exotic marine life that the ocean has to offer. The Caribbean is in tremendous decline. And so, you know, part of what we're doing with Diving With a Purpose is trying to address that decline through our DWP CARES program. That's so sad to hear that there is such a decline. But I like how you broke it down because also I get asked that question because I travel and I travel a lot. What's your favorite destination? And you're right. And I answer it the same way. There are different destinations that I like for different things. So those different experiences that you have. And I can tell you that one reason that I might get my at least resort certification is that I would love to do the whale shark. I've seen some footage of that and it looks absolutely amazing. And in the Philippines, I ran out of time, but I wanted to do it in the Philippines. And they said that they could get me out and be able to do that without having major certification to do that. And one of the other things that you mentioned is the coral scenery that you love so much and that you're part of the Coral Preservation Project. Is there a separate certification for that? 
There is a separate program for that. I don't know if there is a separate certification. DWP has been instrumental in creating specialty certifications for PADI by developing the curriculum that people follow in order to get those certifications. I know for sure that there's a maritime archaeology specialty offered by PADI because I have achieved that specialty. There probably is a coral restoration specialty offered by PADI, but I have not participated in that program. And I think it's very important to really talk about the decline of coral and marine life, as you mentioned earlier. And of course, you're seeing it up close and personal, but and the importance of the coral project. So let's talk a little bit about that and the decline and the importance, especially of coral. Well, DWP, we work pretty hard to educate and empower the individuals, both youth and adults, who are involved with that program to empower them as citizen scientists to help support and our coral system restoration program. Coral is greatly impacted by climate change in terms of increased temperatures that cause the coral to expel the algae that they need in order to grow and ultimately cause the coral to bleach and die. We also are interested in documenting the prevalence of fish and other marine life in areas around the world where there is a potential for decline. Without the data and the information that uh, scientists and even our program provides, we can't accurately understand what's happening to the ocean as a result of what's going on, not only with climate change, but with development that creates runoff that in turn impacts the coral life that's immediately adjacent to land masses. So basically, we monitor and collect information that can be used to make decisions about how to preserve and wisely manage coral reefs all over the world. So that these beautiful places that you've seen are going to be there for years to come. And it's really sad when you said how much of a decline the Caribbean sea is in. You know, this is a place that we all love because of its beauty, of its sea and sand and But to hear that the marine life is in such peril, is that across all of the Caribbean? That's been my experience. I've probably dived virtually every location in the Caribbean over these last 20-something years. Just got back from Cozumel, and I can see the difference. But yes, that's pretty prevalent. I think most divers who've been diving for a while understand that the Indo-Pacific is the place to go if you really want to see a variety of healthy coral and and healthy marine life. I don't want to dissuade anybody from learning how to dive and to dive the Caribbean because to a new person, it's fantastic. But to someone like me who's seen it over 20-something odd years, it is disheartening to see the changes that have occurred. And we're really hoping that the world finds a way to address those changes. Absolutely. And I don't think talking about it really is going to dissuade. I think it's really to say, let's gain some more respect. Let's gain some more sustainability so that we can improve it and understand what we're doing, understand our impact to these environments, whether they're underwater or not. But yeah. I, 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 so I think rather than to, to say that maybe it would dissuade, but maybe that it would educate and give us more of that respect so that we can do our fair share in helping with the preservation. Well, I could go on and on because it's such a pleasure to speak with you, to learn about the things that you are doing in your diving experiences, also with diving with a purpose, which is such a purposeful organization. So again, you are a nonprofit. So how does one contribute? Well, as I indicated earlier, go to the divingwiththepurpose.org website and click the donate button and donate whatever you think is appropriate, whatever fits your budget. Every dollar helps. Mostly now we're channeling the money into our youth program because we expect adults to come to the program prepared to make a financial commitment themselves, but the youth need our support. So please donate on our website, divingwiththepurpose.org. Fantastic. And absolutely, let's get some young folks and expose them to marine life as well. And for anybody who is currently diving and want to become a member of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, 
What is that website? That's it. National Association of Black Scuba Divers. If you just Google that, it'll either come up as National Association of Black Scuba Divers.org or as NABS, N-A-B-S.org. Fantastic. Well, again, Al Dobbins, thank you so much for joining me today. What a pleasure to speak with you and wishing you many more dives. Well, thank you for inviting me to participate. I've really enjoyed this. When I come back, I'll have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Connect with me on social media and visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. Now, we know about the Underground Railroad and how the enslaved headed north with hopes of freedom. However, some followed a lesser known trail of the Underground Railroad and headed south for freedom. You've heard that right. It is a surprising and little known fact that some folks did head south. Well, on the phone with me to tell us about the Underground Railroad to Mexico is Russell Contreras, He's a justice and race reporter at Axios, covering the policies and agencies at the heart of the administration of justice and how it impacts people of color. He's also the co-author of the Axios Latino newsletter. Before joining Axios, he worked as a member of the race and ethnicity team at the Associated Press based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he covered politics, travel, entertainment, and communities of color. He has worked at the Boston Globe and the Albuquerque Journal. Well, hello, Mr. Contreras, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Love the show. Well, thank you so much. And I was so excited when I came across this article that you pinned in the Associated Press. Story of the Underground Railroad to Mexico gains attention. That really piqued my interest because, as I said in the opener, we know and hear mostly about the Underground Railroad, and folks were heading north. No one wanted to head south. But there was an Underground Railroad that headed south to Mexico. What brought you to that story? Well, right after Hurricane Harvey struck Houston, Texas, the town of my birth, I went down there to report about what was the effects of the hurricane on Houston. And I saw that it adversely affected people of color, communities of color, especially neighborhoods that are where I grew up. I grew up in a largely Mexican-American and, and black community. And one area I wanted to see the effects was an area called Freemantown. This was a community there in downtown Houston built by former enslaved people. And its history goes way back before the Civil War. As I was looking at some of these buildings that had been destroyed, or over time had either fallen into disarray, I talked to one activist that said, yeah, that place over there, we were really sad to lose it, and it was destroyed. And then this woman said, it's so sad because it was connected to the Underground Railroad to Mexico. And I wrote that in my notes. I'd heard about this story as a kid growing up in Houston, but you don't really understand the significance until you're an adult. So I wrote it down. I told my editors at the Associated Press, I told my team, this is something I want to look at over time, and they were fascinated. One of my friends and former colleagues, Jesse Holland, he's written two books about enslaved people, including a book about the enslaved people who built the Capitol and the White House. He never heard of it. And he started Googling. And when I talked to him again later, he's like, I gotta be honest with you, man. You said something about this Underground Railroad to Mexico. I'm fascinated. I was Googling all night. I went into like three in the morning looking at this story, as did my editor, Sonia Ross. So I found, I said, this is something we should look at. I'm trying to find out how can I do a story about it. So for three years, as I was doing other things, I would dabble and look and see if there's any research. And over time, I started seeing that historians, especially black and Latino historians, were starting to dive and trying to put together this piece of puzzle uh, on a part of American history that most folks didn't know about. So over time, I started gathering, and it wasn't until the pandemic, when I had time to sit here 
that I really started putting together the story. And it was fascinating. Not only did it uncover something interesting about American history, but it also uncovered something very personal to me. Now, one person that you mentioned in the story is Roseanne, is it Baja Garza? Yes. As a historian who came across this history, what did she find? She came down and she was in a university right near the border. She started looking and looking at the history. She was trying to build something related to the Civil War, how Texas and that area in the borderland, near McAllen, Texas, was connected to the Civil War battles, kind of put the area in context for the battle for freedom and emancipation. And what she would, would uncover in the archives is she would see these ads put in newspapers where white slave owners would ask the public to look for their quote-unquote escape property. And she started noticing patterns that all these ads said, we believe Sammy, who has a scar under his left eye, escaped to Mexico. We believe that Sarah, who has a lazy eye, is down somewhere in Mexico. And as she started piecing together, she started noticing, and through all histories, there were these stories about enslaved people leaving parts of Texas and going south. Some so far had lived in Louisiana and maybe possibly Alabama, escaping some route to south. And she was able to find out that there was this clandestine path, not as organized as the one in the north and not as well-funded as the one in the north, but something going south. And she started digging, and then she uncovered that these regions, these areas, not only had people who escaped, but also families that were connected to a loosely organized network that allowed people to go to freedom. Now, do we know any more about those former slaves and those who helped them along the way? We know very little. What we do know is that through the archives is that people escaped to parts through Eagle Pass and through McAllen, Texas, to towns about an hour or two south of the U.S.-Mexico border. A town called Monclavo, Mexico, was a hotbed where former enslaved people went and kind of gathered themselves before they moved on. These areas were so packed with former enslaved people that white abolitionists, when they went down, were surprised to see so many black people in a Mexican town. They could barely speak Spanish. They knew English. And then we know that slave catchers would go into Mexico to try to recapture these folks. Now, I have to remember, in the early 1800s, slavery was abolished in Mexico, 1824, if I believe. So there was an adverse reaction to Americans going in and invading Mexico. And over time, the Mexican folks would protect these enslaved folks, and there would be battles that would arise over slavery way before the U.S. Civil War. And what would happen with these former enslaved people is they would leave these safe havens and go deeper into Mexico and lost for history. We do know that some learned Spanish and some married into families. They became civil servants. We know one case where a former enslaved person became a postmaster. We know of others who became politicians and then joined the Mexican army. But because they didn't have documents, documenting their even existence as people, they recreated their lives, they changed their names, they mixed into the communities, and then disappeared to history. Now, I do know that there are some black towns in Mexico. You mentioned a location where a lot of the enslaved went to, but today there are some black towns in Mexico. Could they be the descendants of the enslaved who escaped from the United States? I believe so. Right near in northern Mexico, about two hours south of Eagle Pass, there's a village called Nacimiento de los Negros. And it literally means birthplace of black people. It is a place where you can find the descendants of these former enslaved people, but also the descendants of black Seminoles. Right around this time, Mexico invited black Seminoles who had been expelled to Oklahoma to come to Mexico. We need you to be a buffer against these slaveholder invasions and also other native tribes who keep coming in and having conflicts with our communities. So these black Seminoles, who are from Florida, who are themselves descendants of slaves, came down to northern Mexico and then mixed in with these former enslaved African-Americans from Texas and Louisiana and created this own community. This is one of the few places in Mexico where they have monuments dedicated to this history. Unfortunately, 
they've been hit hard with cartel violence. They've been hit hard with economic devastation. And the irony is now these folks, these descendants, whose ancestors once had to cross the border and go around these slave catchers, are now coming to the United States and are avoiding the federal government who is trying to keep them in Mexico. So at one point in history, they were prevented to escaping. Today, they're prevented from coming in. The Underground Railroad to Mexico is one of our most overlooked periods of history and highlights. Of course, Black and Latinos working together to fight slavery. So why do we think that that part has practically been erased without these little nuggets that we are discovering now? That's a good question. I talked to a retired historian out of California, Ron Wilkins. He was a member of SNCC back in the day and a historian. He dedicated his whole life to the study and dissection of African-American history. And he stumbled upon this, and he became absolutely fascinated. And what he discovered is that there's a long history of Mexican-Americans and African-Americans working to fight discrimination and racial terror. And when I posed him, well, why don't we know more about the Underground Railroad to Mexico and this long history of coalition building? And he's like, well, it's because black scholars are in one area of their history and Latino scholars on the other side. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to uncover our own history, but very seldom do we come together and see what did we do in the past. You live in Chicago. We tend to focus on our history of grievances against each other. And this usually goes down to the school board fights, right, or the city council races, or the mayoral elections, right? And we do know that Black and Latinos live in the same neighborhoods. And when we're looking for political power, we tend to run against each other. We tend to think that there's this small pie, right, that we have to fight for that small piece, not actually going for our whole pie or baking a new pie. And if you look at the history, especially in the 19th century, there is a long history of Mexican-Americans and African-Americans working together. Mexican-Americans, especially Portajanos, played a key role in the Underground Railroad to Mexico. They were the ones that provided safe haven along the road. This could not have happened without them. And so did Native Americans. The story is archived because it was a story that I came across in the fall. But if you Google story of the Underground Railroad to Mexico gains attention, you will find it in the Associated Press. And again, the author is Russell Contreras. Russell, again, thank you so much for joining me today. And I want you to stay in touch with me. And any other nuggets that you find of this piece of history, let me know because we want to continue this conversation. Absolutely. I love to talk about this history. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.